you ever had a goal that just seemed impossible? If so, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Notable Peeps podcast, a series that gives attention to remarkable people who are putting on their shoes, doing their best, and believing in the impossible. All my dreams are coming true. Welcome to the Notable Peeps Podcast. My name's Steph, and today I'm with Jason Wasser. And guys, he has a lot of talents that are going on here. So he is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He's an entrepreneur coach, and he is also a certified neuroemotional technique practitioner. So hello, Jason. What the heck is a certified neuroemotional technique pra- practitioner? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. I know we've been planning to do this for a while, so I'm glad it's finally happening today. And neuroemotional technique, or NET, is a clinically researched mind-body stress reduction protocol. So what it really is, in a nutshell, is that we're looking for physiological responses that show up as stress patterns, both emotional and physical. It's both emotional and physical stress patterns. Like, I don't know. I don't think of when I get stressed that it's physically, but... Well, well, the way your body carries things is it can show up as actually a, a pain uh, or um, an injury or a subluxation, which is a chiropractic term. And in fact, the technique actually originated from a chiropractor named Dr. Scott Walker, who found that uh, when people are going for uh, treatment at a chiropractor and they're going over and over and over for the same adjustment, he found that there's typically another component that's going on that's holding that pain or injury in place. And one of the main things that has been found is that it can have an emotional connection. So there's a, there's a famous phrase that says that the issues are in the tissues. So we can really carry emotional stress. Dr. Candace Pert, who is a, a researcher, found that the neuropeptides in our body actually carries information substances that have emotional components connected to it. The issues are in the tissues. That's something new that I didn't know. Yeah. So let, let's go and talk a little bit about a time that might have been a stressful time in your life. It was high school and your GPA was, are you okay with me sharing what your GPA was? Absolutely. I share it with my clients all the time. So you had, <laughs> the badge of honor. <laughs> you had a GPA of 1.8. So let's, how did you get that? That whopping GPA. <laughs> and that 1.8, I think, even came with from honors points. So I had to work really, really hard for that. And in case anybody's wondering, a 1.8 is like pretty much literally over, you know, there passing. So, you know, I wasn't the world's greatest student. I wasn't a bad kid. Um, I just didn't really have much of a connection to what was going on in school at that point in my life. I didn't really put much effort into it. I kind of literally slept my way through it. And uh, there was a lot of stuff going on. Uh, my parents were going through a really major divorce. All divorces are major, but, uh, you know, every story has different tricks and traumas and tragedies. And this one particularly had probably more than the average bear. Yeah, my passion and focus and motivations were kind of out the door at that point. Thankfully, I was very involved in a youth group uh, through my synagogue, and I had a strong connection to that and really good friends and uh, some good mentors and role models. So that was kind of my sanity at that point. But from the academic perspective, looking back now, it was, you know, there was nothing really 
inspiring me at that point. It sounds like high school, you know, academics weren't your priority. So what what shifted? You went to Israel for a little while afterwards. Is that where you started to become a better student? Or really, where did you get that passion for, for learning? So Israel actually came as a default. It wasn't originally my primary first pick. But I knew that a lot of my friends were going to spend a gap year in Israel. And there was a program that I was told about that I was really excited about. It was actually connected to the international youth group that I was involved with and that a program in Israel connected to Hebrew University in Jerusalem. So I was really excited and actually had people from an adult committee actually fundraised or at the point where they thought was fundraised, but they pretty much had scholarship and spending money for me if I got accepted to the program. And of course, as fate turns out, my, my grades kicked me in the butt again. And I was actually turned down from the program, even though from the leadership component of that, of the, of the, uh, of the youth group, I was, you know, accepted from that perspective, but my academics at that point kind of kept me out of the program. So really wanting to go and spend time in Israel and uh, follow a lot of my friends, I ended up at a place called Yeshiva, which is a uh, more advanced in-depth Judaic learning program. It's more kind of like what you would see in some of the movies where people are sitting in a large room and uh, scouring over rabbinic texts and Talmudic texts from, you know, a couple hundred years ago, if not more, and going in debates back and forth and learning Jewish law and Jewish literature from the actual core sources. So I ended up doing that for two years afterwards. Uh, Instead of uh, just doing this program, I ended up staying in Israel for two years. Part of my 30 life crisis was spent at a Jewish synagogue. And mm-hmm. this guy was like, I promise you that there's such thing as kosher pork. And I like believed him for almost a day when everyone was like, don't listen to him. <laughs> it's not a thing. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I mean, we do have like bacon, you know, like bacon, bacon, but it's usually like, you know, pastrami that's like cooked really, really well and, you know, dehydrated maybe, you know, but there is that fake bacon, but there's definitely no such thing as kosher pork as much as, uh, you know, it can't be blessed by a rabbi and all of a sudden, you know. You got... So I learned my lesson to not, to not believe what, everything that you hear right away. But so, exactly. so while, while you were studying, did you learn Hebrew as well? While you were out there then? Or? Yeah, well, I mean, part of, uh, part of my childhood was actually going to religious school, to Hebrew school twice a week. And so, you know, part of that background includes learning how to read Hebrew to be able to be able to uh, access the prayer book. And uh, if you're going to lead services at your bar or bat mitzvah, uh, obviously everybody has different skill levels as, you know, depending on their training and the synagogue and how much effort they put in. But I was pretty fluent in reading Hebrew at that point, but speaking the language is a very different ballgame than reading from a prayer book, and you know, there's modern Hebrew versus biblical Hebrew. So there was an adaptation. I'm still not completely fluent, but you know, to be able to open up one of the Hebrew books and be able to start translating at least mostly in context of what's going on is uh, some of the experience of what I got out of uh, being there for the, for the two years. But a lot of it was really spent not just learning, but also connecting to the land. And there was field trips, and we would go to the archaeological sites, and really the history of the Bible 
really became alive because you got to see all the different places that they were talking about. Oh yeah, that sounds awesome. It's not that you're there for a couple of weeks. Like you lived there for two years. You were probably really immersed in, into the culture. And so during this time, is that when you decided that you wanted to go more in the psychology field or was it afterwards or? Great. So after the cheers, a lot of my friends ended up staying. Some of them are still living there. Some of them went on to become rabbis, but I ended up coming back um, to, I grew up in South Florida, but I ended up coming back this, and was debating whether I wanted to end up living in Florida. And I actually ended up in New York, where during the day I continued my learning at these, in this type of similar type of program. And then in the afternoons or evenings, I was able to go to college. During that time, while I was trying to kind of figure out what I wanted to do, as well as start paying some bills for myself, I actually started teaching at different synagogues, religious school programs or after school religious school programs, kind of like the ones that I grew up in. And I actually found that I really enjoyed it. And one of my favorite stories from that time frame is there was a synagogue that was not far from where I was living. And it was probably, I think, November. So really shortly into the academic year. And I think they already went through two or three teachers in that sixth grade after school Hebrew school class. Was it because they were the, such bad students? Like They were, they the, they were just away. rambunctious. Yeah. Yeah, they were pretty rambunctious. So, um, And it's funny because, right, it's already, it's, they've spent the whole day in school and now they're going to this program and, you know, they have to learn certain things and it's right before their bar and bat mitzvah that year, right before their sixth grade. So they're right, 12-ish. And they're a rambunctious bunch. And to make it worse, the principal's youngest son was in that class. So the principal Ooh. of the religious school. So, right, I have Which is always the and... troublemaker, right? Whatever leaders. <laughs> actually, <laughs> both, of his, both of his kids are great kids. And actually, <laughs> uh, a few years later, it turned out his oldest son became a student uh, when I worked at Princeton University, which we'll get into. His oldest son actually ended up becoming a student there. So I have been kept in touch with the family over the years. So, yeah, no, it turned out to be like this really wild thing. But the first day, instead of like trying to do the old school style, like, okay, we're going to teach you from the top, you know, from the front of the room and it's going to be lecture style. I was standing on top of the desks and walking across their desks while talking to them. So completely not my personality, completely not what they expected. Somehow there was something that compelled me to do different. And all I know is I got a contract and ended up teaching there for three years. Uh, subsequently. And so this was just that. one of your jobs during college, right? Didn't you have a, a few jobs to put you through college? Yeah. So I ended up, so while I was teaching there, I was actually, so that was in the afternoon, one or two, two days a week, but I actually started working in a children's home, also connected to the Jewish community in Brooklyn. So this was mostly kids who had to leave their home, whether there was abuse or neglect, or they were put up for adoption when they were younger. Um, and it was a boys group home in Brooklyn. And the kids range from like 12 years old to 18 years old. And so I was there. I was basically their counselor during the day. So I was in charge of making sure that they were, one, getting up and getting out to school, but also, you know, when they got home from school, hanging out with them, helping, you know, making sure they're, they're getting their homework done. So in a way, it was very social work oriented, mm-hmm. you know, where I was making sure that their needs were, so to speak, attended to as kind of an advisor slash guide. But from there, I would then go back the other part of Long Island and teach at one of these synagogues and then go from there and teach another program at a different synagogue or run a youth group event, a social event at another place. So I was literally driving from seven o'clock in the morning, working at this place till three and then driving for a half hour, 45 minutes to go to a different place, teach for two hours and then go to another place and run a youth event 
multiple times a week. And that's what my life looked like at like 19, 20, 21 years old, while I was also taking college classes twice a week at night. I was pretty busy. So, but it sounded like during this time, you just gained that passion of, of teaching and helping people. And so did that help you decide sort of the path, career path that you wanted? It was getting there. It was creeping in, right? I really knew that I enjoyed working with other people and connecting and inspiring and doing things a little bit off the beaten path. But it wasn't until a bunch of years later where I got a job working at Princeton University's uh, Center for Jewish Life. Uh, Some campuses have uh, what's called the Hillel, which is like the Jewish programming uh, department. At Princeton University, it was actually connected and part of the university. Uh, So the building was actually a a university building. So I became one of the program uh, staff there. And throughout the year, I was really doing some cool stuff. I was doing programs with other departments, the uh, LGBT, LGBT department. I was doing stuff with the Woodrow Wilson School of Foreign Policy. It was really, really cool because I had my uh, my ability to connect with other professors and other staff members and to really get steeped in the culture of all the academia. And my favorite story from that time was actually meeting the world-famous uh, clinical sexologist, Dr. Ruth, who... I'm not sure if you, know, if you know who she is. I'll just pretend like I do. Cause... <laughs> okay, well, well, Dr. Ruth at that time had to be in her late 70s, early 80s, but she is probably all of maybe four foot 11, five foot tall. And back in the 80s, she used to have a late night you know, a TV show, and she was this older woman talking about sex with a heavy European accent. And she was kind of like, before Dr. Phil, there was Dr. Ruth. Oh, okay. Yeah. And she was there as a visiting professor. And one of the cool things that people don't know about Dr. Ruth is she also fought, uh, before the Israeli army was really established, she fought uh, in what's called the Irgun, which was the, the, basically the army that helped fight for the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948, before 1948. So she's a tiny woman who came from Europe and then became this world famous educator and sex educator and a doctorate. And then so she was teaching at Princeton. So one of my students connected me to meet her and she and I went for a walk around campus together, which was really cool. That sounds awesome. She sounds great. Yeah. She was really, really nice. And can we just talk about the fact that you were at Princeton? That's pretty cool. Well, yeah, go figure, right? The 1.8 GPA student who never would have been able to get anywhere near that school ended up working there doing student programming and connecting with, you know, different people from different backgrounds and being a leader there. So it was really interesting to see that, you know, this journey of what I thought I wasn't capable of started coming into fruition when I started spending time more and more. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm not so different from these people. I just had a really different background that never added up to help me get to that place because I didn't believe in myself and I didn't know that I was capable of things. So I think that's where that journey really started uh, from that place. I'm like, hmm, well, maybe I should really start taking myself a little bit more seriously. And so how did you start taking yourself more seriously? Well, at the end of the year, when I knew I wasn't coming back, I was sitting down with one of the students I was close with, and she was going to finish her, now I guess she was going to go start a master's degree in conflict resolution. So we're talking in my office, and she's like, what are you going to do next year? I'm like, I don't know. I'm thinking about graduate school for counseling. And we started doing research together, and we found this really awesome family therapy program back home in Fort Lauderdale, that the curriculum looked incredible. And I'm like, okay, I think this is going to be it. So I applied and pretty much a short time later, I was accepted. And that next fall, I started my my master's. So that was 2003 at that point. 
So then you got your master's, was it marriage and family therapy or? Mm-hmm. Marriage, mm-hmm. Yeah, marriage and family therapy. So that was a two-year program. And then during that time, I was also working at a local synagogue doing youth programming. So I was doing that around the the program. And right after I graduated, I switched and I completely left the programming world and went into starting doing clinical work full-time at that point. So that whole full circle of starting off in one world and then ending up in another world finally kind of took on that transition at that point. What, I guess, do you enjoy most about being in the clinical world? Every day is at this point is so exciting. So my practice has really evolved over the last couple of years. So not only uh, did I start off doing traditional therapy, even though my program is not traditionally uh, based, the modalities uh, that they teach in the family therapy program at NOVA is very, uh, what they would call postmodern. So it's not about the pathology. It's not about the diagnosis. It's more about the reality that you've created internally and the reality that you co-create with the people around you, such as in a relationship or with friends or your relationship to food or to money uh, or your relationship to stress, right? So it's all this dynamic interaction. So once I started really getting that and integrating that into my life, that started becoming really, really cool. As I started working with clients that had more and more difficult uh, situations, it was not about, well, how does that make you feel? And let's give you a diagnosis. It was more about, well, how would you prefer your life to be? And let's start putting those things into place to make that happen instead of just focusing on what's keeping you stuck. And that solution-oriented lens really has allowed my practice and many other therapists who follow that similar path to be more empowered and to uh, be a little bit more strategic with working with their clients. So as time went along, I started stumbling into other things. I was interested in hypnosis, so I got a certificate in that, which led me into sports psychology growing up as a as an athlete when I was younger. I was really interested in the mind of performance and, and, and how to become a better player, uh, whatever, with athletics. And eventually it led me to stumbling on something which turned out to be neuroemotional technique. And that just blew my mind and it completely revolutionized and changed my life, both as a human being and as a practitioner. So how did it change your life exactly? So at the point that I stumbled upon it, I was going through uh, my own personal trauma. I was just uh, post a divorce, a six-year marriage. And, you know, I was trying to keep my practice together and become a better human being and work on myself. But there was still some trauma that I had to work through. And a friend of mine suggested that I uh, take this workshop at University of Miami at their integrative medicine department and ended up doing this workshop. And it was a conglomerate of a few different modalities. But one of the things that they talked about was this NET modality. So I started seeing like how this can work for me, but I never really took it fully seriously until a little bit later when a friend of mine, another colleague of mine said, you know what, you should meet uh, this person who practices NET and you should go for a session. I'm like, okay, I'll give it a shot. I already knew aspects of it. And when I went in to have that session, I brought up some stuff. And this was things that were constantly popping up on my mind. Every time I would think about it, it would make me either upset or frustrated or really annoyed. And working through that in one session, the next day when that same thought popped up, it felt like it rolled off me, like there was Vaseline or jelly on my brain. So the trigger around it pretty much just dissipated. And that really made me have the buy-in. So within, I think, a month from that or two months from that, I went to my first training to become a practitioner in it. And from there, it's been just a wild ride. 
That sounds interesting. That sounds great. So yeah. as we're talking about this and as you're talking about with your clients, how you would talk with them and, and be like, okay, what are some tools we can do to change? So this podcast is all about believing in the impossible and you, you hit on some things. So what's your advice to someone that has a goal and maybe it seems impossible like having a 1.8 GPA and getting their master's and becoming a, a marriage and family therapist? What's your advice to them to stick with that goal and to accomplish it? Well, number one is to have that goal really, really clear. And I'm finding that a lot of people, not only are they not clear on their goals, but they're not clear on their purpose. So people are wandering around kind of bouncing from idea to idea or job to job or relationship to relationship because they're really not clear on the values that they need to be holding in their life. They haven't really defined their values and they're not making decisions on those values. So if you can do that and you can do that consistently, then you can start identifying you know, your goals based on those values. And if you identify those goals based on those values, you're going to be more likely to be consistent with it and to uh, commit to that. So number one is, again, is obviously having an idea of where you want to go, but what are the values that you want to filter your decisions through? And I think that will help radically. And that will also help you, you know, which is the big thing, what's the meaning of life is, you know, finding your purpose and bringing that purpose to the world. So that's kind of the level I operate with now as a practitioner. And when I'm seeing my clients is, you know, I can help you with your relationship. I can help you with your anxiety. I can, but my guess is, is the more you're struggling with things, the more you're misaligned with your purpose or unaware of what your purpose is. And that's also bringing you a lot of the stress in your life. It's so true though. Cause like when you feel that you have a purpose, it just, it gives you more drive to do to do anything, really. Right, and that's probably what we would maybe call the ultimate empowerment because when you're on purpose and you're living in your purpose, you're going to be motivated. You're going to want to get up. You're going to want to do the job. You're going to want to do that hobby. You're going to want to uh, you know, make that extra phone call to try to get a new client or to get a new sale or to uh, fundraise an extra $100 for that organization you really believe in. That's, I think the difference between people doing a job and people having a career might be, you know, what are you passionate about? And I think today's generation, especially, you know, everybody gives a hard time to the millennials, but I think a lot of them are really just looking for their purpose. And that's why they're not so committed to finding, you know, these jobs or they're going from job to job is because, you know, they're looking for something a little bit deeper that they can buy into. And, you know, I think when people buy into something, there's going to be a lot more effort put into it. No, I think that's a great point of with the millennials that they, it's like they don't want to just do someone else's purpose, but they want to, to find their thing, their little space in the world. Exactly. So in, in talking about helping people find their purpose, you've started a group for youth at the Fort Lauderdale Jewish community, right? Absolutely. Yeah. There's a program called the, uh, there's an organization, they're all over the country, uh, the Jewish Federation, and they're, you know, in big cities and uh, smaller communities as well. But uh, the one here in Fort Lauderdale, Broward County, has a really cool program. And through their Jewish education arm, uh, for years, they've had this program and it's taught probably in many places. Um, it was a leadership program. And the leadership program probably hasn't evolved much since I was in it when I was in high school. So having taught there a bunch of years ago and uh, being very close with the staff that there, I kind of reached out to them and said, hey, I've been doing this uh, really cool entrepreneur curriculum uh, through this program called Business Finishing School. And through that program, I actually became a certified uh, entrepreneur and business coach. So I'm like, you know what? There's so much cool stuff in here. What would it be like if I adapted some of the program 
for this leadership program. And we just changed it not just to a leadership program, but an entrepreneurship program. And entrepreneurship is not just about making a billion dollars, but it's about living in your values and identifying your purpose and then making decisions on that. And so we've been doing that since September. So we're now in March and uh, we meet for 20 sessions throughout the through year on Sundays. Um, and we've really been bringing in all these different workshops and speakers and being involved more with the community and how they can be inspired, not just as high school students, but to take those skills and bring it back out into the world, especially when they go to college and become young adults after that. No, I think that's so smart because in high school, a lot of times, like you just start thinking, I was talking with a friend about this, that we're like, we're like, they need to have more real life programs in, in high school about like finances or like, Hey, think about this before getting your credit card because you know a lot of people get credit cards exactly. in college or, or all these things so to go beyond like what's your major gonna be but okay what because I look at so many people that they have their day job but then they have like their their side passion side hustle mm -hmm. that they love to do on the side too exactly exactly and what would it be like if someone can tell like you know teenagers that your side hustle that you think like that okay so you're a musician or you're an artist or you're doing coding or you're doing uh political action you don't have to wait until college to get really involved in that and in fact like one of the things i challenge a lot of my teenage clients and my college age clients is well you're saying you want to do all of these things but you haven't read a book about it you're not watching youtube videos about it you're full of crap so either start doing that or put your attention and your focus to something else because you're just talking a big game. So I'm finding that the more we can call that generation out on it, they'll either get really clear on what they want to do or they'll step up. And obviously I'm doing it with you know compassion and excitement of you know helping and wanting to help them. But I am seeing, you know, especially unfortunately after the shooting, you know, a little bit ago at the Stoneman Douglas school, which is only about 20 minutes north of us, a lot of the kids were connected to friends there, or they knew someone who had a friend there. So it really hit home. And a lot of the kids recently got involved with different organizational activities, both in their school locally or connected with larger South Florida community, uh, connected to that for advocacy for that. So um, one of the kids actually recently got tapped to be on a team committee from Debbie Wasserman Schultz about this issue. So imagine a 16, 17-year-old kid being picked by a congresswoman to be a team leader. And this is kind of what this program we're hoping to inspire. So you think about in high school, how much free time you really do have. When else in oh life gosh, are you going to be able to get out at 2.30? And yeah, you have... And you play have, video games yeah, until 11 o'clock You have homework, night. but it's like most kids, if they have a job, it's like part-time. Like It's a lot of free time that you have. Back, I wish I would have, I mean, podcasting wasn't around back when I was in high uh -huh. school, but I'm like, it would have been cool to get into something like a fun hobby back then. And then by the time you're in college, exactly. you're like, oh yeah, I, I already do this. Exactly. And that actually inspired me recently, which has kind of been like years in the making, probably since I was in high school, is this new coaching brand that I'm working um, a new coaching brand that I'm calling New Winning Life. And I really want to target that age bracket, that young adult, you know, 15 until like their early 20s to really help them guide and 
shape their purpose and inspiration so they can figure out what they want to do because they do have all that time. And you can, you know, create an organization and you can get involved in politics and you can be a leader at that age if you're given the right tools and people want to mentor you. So my whole inspiration of that is to create a program and a curriculum and a, and a coaching program around this idea of helping them win life. Well, and I also think that it's very valuable for them too because it's something different and it gets them to stay out of trouble or to be on social media comparing themselves to other people or, you know, like just like all these things are just mindlessly looking at a screen, but to be out there actively living their life. Right. And that's the idea, you know, Grant Cardone, who's a major entrepreneur, uh, thought leader talks about the idea in one of his books. It's called sell or be sold. Right. So the idea is you're either the person sitting and watching all the YouTube videos all day, or you're the person making the YouTube videos and you're either being sold a bill of goods or you're the one who is selling the bill of goods. And obviously it's better to be the person selling for, you know, that purpose because you're the one who's creating something you're in action. So that's really where I'm trying to come from with my practice and my business and entrepreneur coaching and my, this new, you know, this new winning life brand that I'm trying to create is really about being in action and finding that purpose and being inspired by that. I love it. Being in action. And it's like, cool. I think that like those best friends that you have are the people that can sort of call you on your crap and be like, Hey, you've been talking about this a long time, but are you going to actually do it? So, right. And that's where an accountability group comes in. Right. And, and that's very big in the entrepreneur and business world of having an accountability group. But one of the things that I would like to bring to that level is having them find a people in their life, whether it's friends or a teacher or a mentor or a spiritual leader uh, to hold them accountable to their goals and say, so where are you on that? And what are you doing with this? And I'm giving you two weeks to come back to me and check in with me on this. And I'm finding that when I do that with the people I'm working with, it really does move their life along much quicker. It's so nice to be like, okay, this person's following up on me with me. Like, I'm not just accountable to myself, but someone's looking out. Um, so your website is my website is the family room SFL. So it's South FL is in Florida.com. And if you're looking for more information about neuroemotional technique, there's a ton of really good resources there. If you wanted to, uh, there's actually a first aid stress tool. So if anybody's going through some stress or some discomfort, if you go down to the bottom of the homepage, you'll see a link that says first aid stress tool. You can click on that link and that'll pop up a PDF that'll give you step-by-step instructions to walk you through how you can do this acupressure point connection and it will help you work through some of the things. It's not in a, it's not in a, um, it's not in exchange for actually going to an NET practitioner or a therapist, and, but it definitely is a way to help you work through some things at home in between uh, the other resources you're getting to. So I really, really suggest checking that out. It's the first day stress tool. And then if they want to keep in touch with me, they can go at two Instagram accounts. Uh, one is Jason Wasser LMFT, and uh, the other one is Dream Consulting. I'm oh, sorry, Dream Biz Consulting. And I'm working on building the You Winning Life brand as we speak. So eventually that'll be up uh, both on Instagram and Facebook as well. Well, sweet. So yeah, go in and check him out there. And, and as we we're talking, I just was thinking, so sometimes, I mean, being a, a therapist, do you feel like tons of pressure to always have it together? Or how do you, <laughs> I mean, because you're always listening to other people and you're trying to help them. How do you keep it all together? Uh, well, I, I like having that, you know, 
conversation with my clients when I'm calling them out on something. I'm like, well, that reminds me of the time where I screwed that up, you know? So I put a little bit of uh, normalizing into the scenario or like I'll playfully, you know, say something. And I'm like, all right, everybody raising your hands in the room who's done this before. And like, you know, obviously we'll all raise our hands. So, you know, I like having that connection with my clients at that level to be like, okay, like this guy can figure it out. I can figure it out. We can all figure it out. We're not all having to be stuck. Uh, I try to find time to meditate. I try to find time to pray uh, on a daily basis. I try to eat as healthy as possible and surround myself with good music and good friends. I really, uh, one of the big things for me has been auditing my circles of uh, who I'm around, who I'm spending time with and learning to say no if I have no interest in being with them. Uh, Gary Vaynerchuk has been talking a lot about that, of auditing your circles and, and, and dropping the loser friend and picking up someone who's on their way to becoming something with himself. And that's the energy you want to be around. And I think it's completely true. You know, you're the, what's that phrase? You're, you're, you're the combination um, of the some five result. people. Yeah, yeah. And it's true. And it's very, I find it to be very, very true. I've never heard that phrase, auditing your circles. And I mean, that sounds harsh where you're like, get rid of the loser friend. Because I'm like, no, everyone's like so great. But I do think that the it, when you are spending time with people that, that maybe they don't believe in your goals or they're always tearing you down, like you start to mm -hmm. believe that, you know? And so. Exactly. And a lot of times they're doing that because of the fear or the lack of consistency in their own life. So, right. They're going to want to project that out on you. Or they just aren't working on themselves, right? That self-awareness and that self-growth. But, um, you know, it's the, 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 the kind of joke that I've been playing with recently to kind of explain this is kind of like the Dalai Lama is never going to really fall in love with a stripper. He may care about her. He may want to counsel her. He may want to guide her spiritually. But, you know, they're not going to run off into the sunset together. <laughs> so so as, as irreverent that is, it really puts that picture into place of, you know, if you keep complaining about all the challenges you're having in your life, you got to look in the mirror and say, okay, well, what am I doing? What am I contributing to it? And who am I allowing in my life to be part of that? And I'm only going to attract what I, where I'm at. So if you keep getting it, take a look in the mirror and, you know, do some serious accounting on that for yourself. Well, there you go. I like that though, how you said the self-care, prayer, meditating and auditing your circles is how you're able to, to take care of yourself and, and, you know, you look at it, you have all these different projects that are going on, but I feel like sometimes the people that I know that are the most successful, they do have a lot of things going on and it's like, they're just able to, to juggle all the balls. So. Or at least try as yeah. best as possible, but they all, you know, at the end of the day, they're all connected to the same source, which is really, you know, minimizing other people's stressors and helping them maximize their potential. And that's really the brand that I'm going with, right? And that goes back down to my core values. So as long as it aligns with my core values, it's a very simple yes, as long as I can prioritize. And if it's not aligned with my values, it's like, nope, sorry, not going to happen. So I think each of those components, although they're a little bit different from each other, all relate back to my vision of how I want to you know, see my life uh, engaging with the world and with people around me. Well, and isn't that what we all want at the end of our lives to like, I mean, I remember I used to work at assisted living and there's this lady, her name was Brownie and she was 103 and Aww. she would always say, she would be like, the devil doesn't want me and the good Lord won't take me. So I'm stuck. But <laughs> if I was 103 and in Brownie's situation, I would want to look at my life and be like, you know, I, I tried it here and, and did this and my life was aligned, like what you're saying with my values and I did my best. So I think that's what we're all striving for. So 
Right. And I think that's the last of the four agreements from Don Miguel Ruiz, right? It's the be impeccable with your word. Don't take, don't take things personally. Don't make assumptions and try your best, right? You're going to screw up. It's inevitable, right? You are going to mess it up a billion and one times in your life. Just pick yourself up, dust yourself off and let's start from scratch, you know, and just do it over again. So yeah, that's, that's a very simple, but very wise word that he wrote in that book, The Four Agreements. Well, and that ties in exactly with our taglines to remember to put on your shoes, do your best, and believe in the impossible. So great way to end. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for pushing play and listening to this episode. For more information about today's guests or to submit a nomination for a remarkable person that you would like to hear interviewed, head on over to NotablePeeps.com. All my dreams are coming. All my dreams are humming. All my dreams.